Hello and welcome to a detour. You should be standing on a corner of North Rampart and St. Peter Streets, with the entrance of Armstrong Park behind you. This main street in front of you is North Rampart Street, and it's got its name because this is where an actual wall stood which fortified the French colonial city of New Orleans when it was founded in 1718. As a city on the edge of civilization, there was a large military presence to keep settlers safe and the city resembled a fort in a lot of ways. You know, back then, if we were standing right here, you'd have been outside of the walled city. This street is the dividing line between the French Quarter, the oldest neighborhood in the city, and just on the other side, over there, is a neighborhood called Faubourg Treme. In French, Faubourg means fake city. In other words, this wasn't part of the original city. And because of that, this area is still known by all of us as back of town. This neighborhood began as a Moran plantation and two forts, St. Ferdinand and St. John. Near the end of the 18th century, Claude Tremé, a French hat maker, received this land from his father-in-law, Mr. Moran, and started to parcel off to folk who could pay for it. But who was moving here? Early in the city's history, this was the main neighborhood for free people of color of Cuban and Haitian ancestry. So despite being outside of the original city, the Treme has been one of the most influential neighborhoods in New Orleans as a source of African culture for well over 200 years. Jazz was created in Treme, which influenced rock, funk, and hip-hop. And this neighborhood, which I'm proud of, has fought for civil rights, including a landmark court case and a blueprint for community organization. And even today, the Treme is an important center for the city's African-American and Creole cultures. I'm Al Jackson. I was born in the Treme, and I love it. I've lived here most of my life, and I've made it my mission to study and document the musical history of New Orleans. And a lot of that history happened right here. I've spent over 30 years collecting and preserving African-American culture in this neighborhood at my Petit Jazz Museum. Today, I'm going to show you the neighborhood and you see why the Treme is the cradle of black culture in America. Okay, let's turn around and face Louis Armstrong Park. We're going to go in through that entrance with the big iron gate. Keeping right, let's head inside towards the big trees just in front of you inside of the park. Follow the path in front of you towards the right. You're headed towards a big open space. Keep walking straight ahead through the trees. Do you see the clearing ahead? That's where we're going. Born in the Treme in the French Quarter, this park can be really busy sometimes. But other days, it can feel almost empty, like you have the whole place to yourself. It's open as long as it's daylight out, so people like to come here to have picnics or practice playing music. You should be just about from under the tall tree cover. Keep heading into the middle of this clearing, I'll meet you there, in the center of the converging stones. Have you reached the center of the square yet? Stand on the metal circle, there in the middle. This is Congo Square, and it's been here for centuries. Congo Square is the town square of Treme, and was originally known as Plastis Neg, where slaves gathered on Sundays to dance to African music. This tradition flourished until the years before the Civil War, when United States officials got nervous about unsupervised gathering of slaves. But let's get out of the sun. With the you came into your back, 
head to the giant oak tree with the concrete benches underneath. Stand in the shade and look at the square. You see, when New Orleans was still a French and Spanish colony from 1718 until 1803, laws and attitudes toward slavery were less strict than the ones that followed the Louisiana Purchase. For example, the Code Noir, or Black Code, was a French law that gave slaves Sundays off and allowed them to earn money towards buying their own freedom. But this all changed for slaves when Louisiana joined the United States and it outlawed congregating in places like Congo Square. Then, in 1817, the mayor of New Orleans issued a decree that slaves could gather here, but only here, legally. So Congo Square continued to be an important place for the African community to express itself. But the enslaved population in New Orleans wasn't homogeneous. They were brought from different countries, spoke different languages, practiced different religious customs, Bantu and Congolese mixed with cultures from the Caribbean, and they all shared their different traditions. Probably quiet now, but if you were in 1817, you'd be ready to dance. The kalinda was a popular dance, with roots in a stick-fighting martial arts from the Congo. People danced for hours as crowds gathered, and it wasn't just slaves who gathered here. There were also free African-Americans, or black Creoles, and white Creoles as well. During slavery, this square was also a market for slaves to sell their crafts and goods. Imagine, if you could, enslaved Africans playing bambula drums, sharing fabric and food, anything they could scrape together or make them or remind them of where they came from. By sharing and selling to each other, they kept these traditions and goods in their economy, even if it was separate from the rest of the city. Actually, go ahead and take a look at your phone. I want to show you an illustration called Bambula, like the drum they played. This was painted by E.W. Kimball, based on the accounts he had read about. And even after the Civil War ended, the square continued to be an open-air market. And it was a place to play music. Black Creole brass bands performed here, providing the foundation for the most improvisational style of music that would come to be known as jazz. Before we go, turn around and look at the building behind the tree. That building over there, the great one, was this community's municipal auditorium. It was built in 1930. It used to be used for all kinds of events and performances. I remember the circus, Barnum and Bailey, debutante balls later on, but it closed in 2005 after being damaged by Hurricane Katrina, and the city has not reopened it yet. Facing the center of the square, turn left and follow the path between the two benches, keeping the auditorium on your left side. See the stone object up ahead? It's a sculpture. Let's head towards it. There are lots of statues here, but we're looking at the gray one just in front of us on our left. Okay, let's stop at the sculpture ahead of us on your left. Stop here. The sculpture should be on your left. Take a look at the sculpture. In 1819, a French architect by the name of Benjamin Latrobe wrote all about stumbling onto Congo Square. He said, I heard the most extraordinary noise, which I suppose to proceed from some horse mill, the horses trampling on a wooden floor. I found out, however, on emerging from the house onto the commons, that it proceeded from a crowd of five or six hundred persons assembled in an open square. This is what a rowdy Sunday in Congo Square must have looked like back in 1820. 
Take a look at the man at the bottom right playing the drums. That jimmy drum were ever present. But string instruments as well were another part of the musical tradition. See the banjo play on the left side, just to the left of the lady dancing? Banjos are derived from an African instrument, and some people think the word banjo comes from the Yoruba word bamijo, which means dance for me. Handmade drums of all types beat to the rhythm of barefooted stumping. String instruments reverberated over the chants of colorfully dressed dancers who moved to the improvised sounds. With so many cultures coming together to create music, it's quite easy to understand how this may have been the genesis of jazz as we know it today. But despite this revelry, reality sets in and most of these people were being held captive. And the chain at the bottom of the statue is a necessary reminder. Stay here, but look past the sculpture to the municipal auditorium for a second. By 1930, the Tremaine was primarily a working-class African-American neighborhood. And right where you're standing, this was someone's front yard as well. But then the city tore down all of the houses that were here to build the municipal auditorium and a cultural center that never came to fruition. And over a period of several years during the early 1960s, as an urban renewal project, the city tore down another large portion of central Treme, and the land stood vacant for a long, long time. And alas, finally in the 1970s, thanks to Moon Landrew, the city created this fantastic park and identified Congo Square as a place of importance in our culture. Can you believe thousands of people were displaced from their homes only to see the land sit as a pile of dirt for decades? The Treme struggled under all of the city and federal government meddling in our community, but they couldn't kill the spirit here, and that very spirit is what saved us. Okay, facing the statue, turn to your right and head towards the main walkway. See the arc off towards your right? That's where we're going. Keep walking and head through it. Remember, we're about to exit the park through the gates under the archway. You're passing a sculpture of jazz musicians on your left. Now, Louis Armstrong Park has become a new gathering place for the community built on the rich history of Congo Square. Here we will find folk celebrating festivals, keeping things alive with live music, great food, beautiful people selling their crafts and wares. And the park itself honors this spot's connection to the birth of jazz. Well, up ahead there, we're going to continue out the gate onto the sidewalk just outside the park keep walking. After you've made it left to exit the park, walk straight ahead, Rampart Street stays on your right, and the park stays on your left. Walk towards the next intersection, up ahead. So why was the Treme the chosen neighborhood for free people of color? Well, early in the city's history, most free people of color arrived from the French colonies in the Caribbean, and sometimes from West Africa. However, the Louisiana Purchase happened after the Haitian Revolution when Toussaint Louverture, Haitian general, took on the mighty French army and won. And because of that war, Haitian immigrants left Saint-Domingue as refugees and came to New Orleans via Cuba. By 1810, almost 44% of the city's free population were people of color. Many of the free people of color settled in the Tremé neighborhood where they could purchase Claude Tremé's land outside of those city walls. In fact, Fort Treme is considered the first free black neighborhood in all of America. By 1810, Treme had sold off most of his parcel property to French and Spanish colonial settlers, 
as well as recent immigrants from Haiti and Cuba, and both black and white transplants from other parts of the United States. He even sold a portion to the city for $40,000 that was turned into a college for French speakers. But the majority of the land was purchased by free women of color. Remember, keep walking ahead. The park stays on your left. How did women of color own homes in the early 1800s? Through a Spanish and French practice known as plosage, where free women of color were often kept by white men as mistresses. The men put up these women and their children in the small houses throughout the Treme, and the deeds were under the woman's own name. The children boasted the names of Jean de Couleur de Livre, or free people of color, and were often sent to Europe by their fathers to be educated. These children of color received financial support from their fathers while their fathers were alive, which helped raise the economic standard of the neighborhood of Treme. This created a sort of three-tier social structure, almost like a caste system, with enslaved Africans on the bottom rung, freedmen above them, and then mixed-race Creoles under the white population. Each rung on the ladder interacted with the others, and enslaved Africans and free people of color frequently socialized. So this neighborhood was integrated from the start, and this is one of the reasons that Treme continues to be more progressive and influential than other American neighborhoods throughout its history, including the civil rights era of the 1900s. Keep walking ahead. Up at the corner, you'll be taking a left to keep walking. The park stays on your left. As free people bought land in the Farberg Treme, they started to participate in the gatherings already going on at Congo Square. Before long, they too were involved in preserving traditions that have been going on for almost a hundred years. Okay, remember, you're making your left around the corner of the park. Keep walking straight ahead. Congo Square created a bond between the enslaved who gathered here and free people of color who lived here. Henriette DeLille's mother was one of those free women of color who bought her own plot of land and became a part of the community here. Henriette, though born in 1813 to a Creole mother and wealthy white father, she could have passed for white, although strict racial laws prevented her from marrying a white man. So her mother groomed her to find a white common-law husband through the Placide system. Tempting as it was for Henriette to become the mistress of a white man, her religious calling was much stronger, and she became an outspoken opponent of the Placide system because she believed that it violated the Catholic sacrament of marriage. Henriette followed her faith and was influenced by Sister Martha Fortier, who had opened a Catholic school for girls of color. In 1827, at the age of 14, the well-educated Henriette began teaching at the sister school. Over the next several years, Henriette de Lille fully devoted herself to caring for and educating the poor, especially the black population here. Up ahead, we'll turn right and cross the street. Be careful. See that wooden fence? Let's head over there and walk down the street. Look at the street sign across the way on the corner. See its name? Henriette de Lille. Careful crossing the street. I'll meet you on the other side. Let's walk right down the side of the street. In 1836, Henriette became the executive of her mother's estate, and she used some of the monies to found her own small, unrecognized order of nuns called the Sisters of the Presentation. The original members consisted of De Lille, seven other young Creole women, and a young French woman. They cared for the sick, helped the poor, instructed free and enslaved children and adults, 
They even took elderly women into their home, essentially operating America's first Catholic home for the elderly. In 1837, the church formally recognized the order and Henriette as the mother. She later changed the name to the Sisters of the Holy Family. Around the same time, Marie-Jean Alicot, a French immigrant, was running a school in the French Quarter, where she educated free girls of color. In 1834, she had purchased the city's college, Collège d'Orléans, and moved her school to the Treme, which is how she met Henriette de Lille. They joined forces to care for the poor, the elderly, and educated children of color. Keep walking ahead. Okay, let's move it on a little bit and watch the road up here. Let's keep heading straight. Cross when it's safe, and I'll meet you across the street. With the church's official recognition, Henriette and Marie began a fight to build a proper church in the Treme. At this point, there was no church in the neighborhood where African Americans could worship, and they had to leave the neighborhood for service. Keep walking ahead. It didn't take long for the Ursuline nuns, the convent that purchased Maria Alacroix's old school building in the French Quarter, to generously donate the property upon your left. Their only condition, the church be named after their patron saint, St. Augustine, who actually had led a reform in the church against slavery in the 4th century. Permission was granted by Bishop Antoine Blanc to proceed, and the building of St. Augustine began in 1840. The church was designed by Jean-B. de Pouly, a French architect who oversaw the 1850 restoration of St. Louis Cathedral, the oldest cathedral in the United States, which is located in the French Quarter. St. Augustine Church was dedicated and opened for service on October the 9th, 1842. Stop here at St. Augustine Church. This is the oldest Catholic church established by African Americans in the United States. But this victory for Henriette and the Treme wasn't without controversy. Because of this education, the standard of living in Treme was higher than any other black neighborhood in the country. With skills for higher paying jobs and higher literacy rates, the neighbors supported restaurants and the arts. A few months before the dedication of St. Augustine Church, free people of color began to purchase pews for their families, which was a standard practice in the church back then. When the white folk in the neighborhood found out, they started a campaign to buy up more of the pews than the free people of color did in an effort to make the church mostly white. And so, the war of the pews began. Ultimately, the free people of color in Treme bought more pews than the whites. Three to one. Can you imagine, even shocking at that time, the free black members also bought pews to give to slaves? Making St. Augustine the first exclusive place of worship for slaves in the United States. Now, this mix of pews resulted in the most integrated congregation in the entire country at that time. Imagine walking in on Sunday and seeing one large row of free people of color, one large row of white members, and two outer aisles of pews for the enslaved. And the church remained integrated throughout the Civil War and up until the expansion of Jim Crow in the 1920s, when sadly, St. Augustine became white only for almost 40 years. But today, that has changed. An open mass is held every Sunday at 10 o'clock a.m., and all are welcome to come and worship. Facing St. Augustine Church, make a right and keep walking to the corner in the same direction we're heading. Up at the corner, turn left and cross the street. Walk up Governor Echo Street, past the telephone pole. I'd like to show you something right in front of the church. Stop here for a moment 
and face the church. Look at the iron cross made of enormous chain links. This cross, falling on its side in the earth, is the tomb of the unknown slave, and it honors slaves who were buried without markers here and everywhere. See, De Pouilly used slave labor to construct the church, and some of the slaves involved in the project were buried on the church grounds. If you like, let's take a moment of silence to honor these people as well. Facing the church, just turn right and let's head down Governico Street. Faith helped create a sense of community in the Treme, and the religion also guided this neighborhood during the early civil rights movement of the late 1800s. New Orleans had a lot of racial tension, and one of the most famous civil rights cases happened right here, right here in the Treme. The defendant was Homer Adolf Plessy, a free man of color, one-eighth African, seven-eighth European. He was considered black under Louisiana law, so he had to sit in a segregated train as he attempted to ride across the lake to Covington. Keep walking ahead to the corner. Okay now, up ahead, we will cross the street ahead and continue walking down Governicles. Keep walking and I will meet you on the other side of the intersection. Make sure to cross when it's safe. In 1896, the Committee of Citizens, an early activist group, persuaded Plessy to sit in a whites-only car. They even hired a private detective to arrest him to make sure that he was charged with violating a separate car act. You see, they wanted to challenge the law in court and prove that segregation was unconstitutional, man. Judge Ferguson, the local judge in the case, ruled that because the cars were equal, Plessy's rights weren't violated, and he gave Plessy a $25 fine. Plessy, of course, refused to pay the fine and appealed the case all the way to the United States Supreme Court. But the justices agreed with Judge Ferguson, and separate but equal was the law of the land until the next watershed moment in the fight for civil rights. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 finally made segregation illegal. Keep on walking. You're headed the right direction. Let's turn left at the corner and walk down Murray Street. The neighborhood of Treme has always been an incubator for social and political movements in New Orleans. You know, the Committee of Citizens that worked with Homer Plessy was just one in a long line of citizens' groups to come out of this neighborhood. Decades earlier, by 1834, the Society de Economie was formed, made up of middle and upper-class professionals, creoles of color. This altruistic club built Economy Hall, and in 1857, became an important gathering place for the multicultural community and an incubator of early jazz. But it was an exclusive and initially secret club. So working-class African-American Creoles decided to form the Société des Artisans, or Society of Artisans. This society provided Creoles of color the opportunity to exchange political ideas and present their works. These radical Creoles were inspired by the egalitarian ideas of the French Revolution, and outright rejected the racist system in place in America. They despised the creoles of mixed race who passed as white or used their status for privilege and focused on trying to eliminate slavery and to assure the right to vote for every man in the country, regardless of race. Keep walking ahead. All right, so we're going to cross over the street and up ahead, just keep walking in the same direction we're going now. As you walk, look to your right down Erstenine Street. It's not there anymore, but Economy Hall would have been on your right. These and other benevolent societies of the middle 1800s helped the community and often took the place of insurance, which most free blacks could not get at the time. 
the societies use the collection dues to pay for members' health care costs, funeral costs, and financial hardships. They also performed charitable work and hosted social events. This tradition can be traced all the way back to initiation associated in West African cultures. Contemporary African-American social aid and pleasure clubs grew out of these benevolent societies and continued to unify black communities. And one tradition that vibrantly continues is the Second Line Parade, a parade with jazz music and a lot of dancing. Now, each group hosts yearly parades on his club's anniversary, and oftentimes, when one of the members dies, a jazz funeral then would be performed for that dead member. That jazz funeral was adopted by Afro-Creoles, and I've been parading for a long time, almost my whole life, but for the past 24 years, I've been doing so as a member of a social club known as the Black Men of Labor. At the corner, cross the street to the right and continue walking up St. Philip Street. Let's walk up St. Philip, keeping school on our right, and there's Craig School, my old alma mater. Now the second line is led by the Hosting Social Club and followed by a brass band. Members are dressed in coordinated suits and hats, feathers and plumes, and dance through the streets and wind their way through the residential neighborhood with a lot of fanfare. The club members and the band members make up the first line, and everyone else who follows behind us is the second line. This tradition can be traced back to the early gatherings of Congo Square. And unlike a typical parade, people here don't just stand on the sidelines as the procession goes by. People join right in and become part of the parade. And the second line, you can pick up hundreds of people as the parade moves through the streets. In fact, there's a place up ahead where you can see what a second line looks like. Up at the corner, we're going to cross the street and stop at the building on the opposite side. Okay, let's stop here outside the Tremaine Coffee House. Let's go inside. Don't worry, they're expecting you. If anyone asks, tell them you were detoured. If they're closed, just stop and listen. Now, all through the spring and fall, social aid and pleasure clubs celebrate their anniversaries with parades on Sunday afternoons. And I want to show you what we look like, black men of labor. When you get inside, look to the right of the counter. See a large black and white picture hanging on the back wall? That's us, Black Men of Labor, getting ready for a second-line parade to be led by none other than yours truly, Al Jackson. Actually, he was one of the first members of that club in 1994. Now, if you want to grab something to drink or stop to use the restroom, pause me, and when you're done, press play, and then we'll get going again. So pause me if you want to drink, but otherwise, I'll meet you outside. Outside now, let's keep going. With your back to the door of the coffee house, make your left to keep walking. The coffee house stays on your left. The Black Men of Labor started doing an annual second line parade way back in 1994, and the tradition continues every third Sunday in October. Keep walking past the red brick school on your right. It's really important to me to be a part of this club because the Black Men of Labor honors the hard work of our ancestors in a bunch of ways way far beyond the annual parade. We also coordinate with the local health clinic to provide free health screening a few times a year for low-income residents of our neighborhood. These are just a few of the ways we get back to the community, and this carries on in the same tradition as those early societies who fought for civil rights and helped their communities. Keep walking ahead. There's a small white church up ahead, 
cross Ursuline Avenue and continue towards it. I'll be waiting for you up ahead. Keep walking ahead once you've crossed the street. Now, like I said earlier, the Treme of the Bird Place of Jazz and Second Lines and Social and Pleasure Clubs and continue to showcase its music in the neighborhood, and this is a source of community pride. Locals joke that not a single worthwhile football player has ever come out of this neighborhood, but you damn well know that there aren't any finding musicians. It's true. You'd be hard-pressed to find kids playing football in the streets, but nearly everyone plays an instrument, and the Black Men of Labor is committed to preserving traditional jazz music through our Music of All Ages program, we structured the program this way to keep the history alive and make sure musicians pass down their knowledge to the next generation. It is my passion for jazz and the history of the neighborhood that fueled the museum. The one I told you about in the beginning of our walk today? Up ahead, you're coming to that museum. On the left, is painted Robin Egg Blue, and there's a sign on the wall reading Tremaine's Petite Jazz Museum. You see, back in 1997, we bought the old Negro Musician Union Hall in hopes to preserve this building and convert it into a museum. Too much decay, too much, you name it, it just fell victim to it. We weren't able to save the building because of structural damage, but we did preserve everything we could find inside, including jazz music, photographs, recording contracts, performance contracts, never-be-seen-before images of original recording material. Let's stop up ahead on your left, and I'll show you my museum. Stop right here, and this is, voila, Treme's Petite Jazz Museum. I opened this place in 2016 to preserve and showcase the history that I found and have been bringing in more art and exhibits as I track them down, not just from here in New Orleans, but from all over the world. If we're open today, I want you to head inside for a moment. Admission is normally $10, but tell them it would detour, and it's only 5 bucks. If they're closed right now, wait outside and I'll tell you a bit more about it. Okay, pause me and head inside. When you're inside, press play. I might even be the one greeting you. All right, are you inside? Head past the front desk, toward the table, just behind it on the left side of the room. See the sheets of paper? These are original recording and performance contracts. This one on the top row, second over from the right, Dates back to 1954. Read it. It says, Louis Armstrong, Biloxi, Mississippi, $1,000 <laughs> for a recording. Now look down at the signatures. Ray Charles, James Brown, B.B. King. Hard to believe that such an iconic and important musician was paid so little. Sometimes it feels like this contribution of these musicians were definitely undervalued compared to the lasting impact. Now turn around and walk to the opposite wall, towards the paintings. You see the third painting from the right? Looks familiar? That's Congo Square, as it would have looked like in the early 1800s. I commissioned this and most of these paintings from local artists to help illustrate the history of jazz, where it came from, and how it got here. Like the trimmer itself, jazz has deep roots in the African rhythms of those dances at Congo Square. The museum has a lot of exhibits, but I haven't labeled most of them because I prefer to talk to people so they can ask questions. Keep looking around, and feel free to ask me or whoever's here about anything you find, if it's interesting or challenging. Pause me now, and when you're finished, head back outside and press play. I'll meet you there. All right, with your back to the museum door, 
turn left and head around the corner. We're going to walk up Governor Nichols Street. Jazz isn't just history here. It's alive and well in the streets of the Treme. While on your walk today, you might have heard a drum or horn being played. If you're here on a Sunday, there's a very good chance you'll run into a parade. Lots of modern artists call the Treme home or spend their formative years here. Popular New Orleans musicians like Kermit Ruffin, Glenn David Andrews, James Andrews, and John Boutte say that their time living in this neighborhood is what made them musicians they are. You can still find them hanging around here some days, showing up at venues like Kermit Ruffin's Place, Rays on the Avenue along Claiborne Avenue, which is where the new Frenchman Street has become. And you can definitely see them on Sundays, showing up for second-line parades throughout the neighborhoods. Keep walking ahead towards the corner. Let's turn left here at the corner ahead and head down North Robertson Street. These musicians today are continuing a proud tradition that has its roots buried deep here in the Treme. At the end of the 19th century, New Orleans created a red-light district called Sturryville in the upper part of the Treme. And black musicians from the Treme and from South Rampart played at bars and brothels in Sturryville. These are the places where the Creole brass band music, which sounded more like military music, started to transform into a looser style, eventually becoming rag and jazz. Alphonse Picou was one of such musicians from the Treme. Because Alphonse was a light-skinned Creole, he could play clarinet with black bands as well as white bands. He mostly performed classical music with his symphony orchestra, but he also played in brass bands. He was even the occasional band leader of Succeed of Brass Band which included jazz greats like Papa Celestine and Louis Armstrong. Alphonse hosted jam sessions in his home, running kind of a private bar for the neighborhood. When Pico passed away in 1961, at the age of 82, his funeral was one of the biggest the city had ever seen. He was one of the last musicians who was here during the birth of jazz in Pico's house, where he held those jam sessions. On the corner to your right, you see it? Having these links from one generation to the next is really important. Musicians teaching and bringing up the next generation is what the Treme is all about. You see kids walking around here playing a horn, and somebody will yell off their front porch that they know this flat. Everybody's willing to help teach a little here. There's a cafe ahead of us. Cross Ursuline Street to get there, and then keep walking in the same direction. Walk ahead with the cafe on your left. And as important as jazz music was to the Treme, these guys were also introducing it to other cities. Musicians like Pico traveled to New York and Chicago to play, spreading jazz throughout the country. These musicians also helped spread rhythm and blues, which is part of jazz history. You know, even if you're not a regular jazz listener, you can thank jazz for the music you enjoy. You see, all that cross-pollination influenced the evolution of rock and roll in the late 1950s, rap and hip-hop in the 70s and 80s. I think it's fair to say that just about every form of American music is, in some way, born out of this neighborhood and music we played here. Rock and roll uses a similar rhythm. Rap has improvised lyrics or freestyling, just like jazz has improvised horn or wind solos as one of its key pillars. Soul and gospel have a jazz influence also. And even pop music owes a lot to jazz. You should track down some brass bands or New Orleans-style jazz and give it a listen. Keep walking until you get to the corner. Okay, see the broad green lawn with a black metal sign on the corner up ahead? Let's cross the streets to get there. Just wait until it's very safe because traffic sometimes does not stop. This is Tupafat Square, which is named after the musician. 
Anthony Tuberfats Leachin. You can guess this one. Tuba was his instrument. Before he passed away in 2004, Tuba spent almost every day playing in public places all over New Orleans, particularly Jackson Square in the French Quarter, and even right here. Since 2005, this spot has been a place for locals to hang out for barbecues, picnics, and playing music. People hang around to remember Tuba Fats and remember the music of Tremaine. Standing at the sign, look to your left, down the street. You'll see a colorful painted fence. See the one-story cinder block building behind that fence? Let's walk there. That's the famous Candlelight Lounge, home of Uncle Lionel Baptiste and Benny Jones of the Treme Brass Band. It's the most iconic live music establishment here in the Treme neighborhood. Every Wednesday night, every Friday night, and on Sunday afternoons, you gotta come by. So from the beginning of jazz in the 1890s until today, dozens of bars and clubs have featured live music every night. Some have been owned by musicians like Sidney Brown, others just by music lovers. While you can always hear music in the parks and square, the candlelight offers you the chance to hear some of the best bands playing real jazz for locals and tourists alike. Okay, let's stop here outside. To the left of the door, there should be a mural of two musicians. Candlelight has been here for over 30 years, and the bar opens at 11 o'clock in the morning, but the bands don't stop playing until 9 or 10. And in a minute, you can head inside, and depending on what time it is, get a drink or hear some jazz music. It seems fitting for me to leave you here, since the Candlelight is a Treme jazz institution. Unlike some of the more touristy spots in the French Quarter, the brass bands inside of Rampart Street play what they want, how they want, so you never know what you'll get. I hope my walk made you feel connected to the history and the music of the Treme. I'm very proud to call this neighborhood my home, and I hope you will take some of our culture home with you. Now enjoy the music as it play me out. Yeah.